The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, which you can subscribe to at miningstocks.com. Also, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And it is time, if you're interested in subscribing to Chen, that you put your name on the waiting list at miningstocks.com for Chen Lin's newsletter. Uh, He will be accepting new subscribers during the first half of January 2015. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank our sponsors also for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Columbus Gold, Cornerstone Capital, and Dynacor Gold Mines. I've titled today's show, Jim Rogers Explains Why He Is Looking More Favorably Towards Russia. My guests for today's show are Jim Rogers and Eric Coffin. Both of these interviews were pre-recorded, but given time constraints, only a portion of Eric's comments are available on this show. I will be passing on more of his comments later on a podcast at jtaylormedia.com. Eric will be with me in just a minute or two after our first commercial break. Then, uh, following Eric, I will be talking to world-renowned investor, traveler, professor, TV commentator, and author Jim Rogers. Jim will explain why he is turning cautiously optimistic towards Russia, even as the rhetoric in the United States is increasingly hostile towards that country. As we enter the new year, a new colder war is being launched by the United States and NATO against Russia, and I firmly believe that the objective views and insights of Jim Rogers on that topic will be very, very helpful. One of the things uh, I would like to point out, Marin Katusa, who was on this show a few weeks back, pointed out that this is a colder war, colder than the previous one, and Marin uh, suggests that contrary to public opinion and to the propaganda that we are getting every day in the United States, that it's Putin that is winning this colder war, not the United States, at least up until this point in time. For various reasons. First of all, the notion that the weak ruble is bad for Russia is purely and completely wrong. Russia is able to export more oil, not less, as a result of that. And it's building up more uh, foreign currency reserves and gold as a result of it. 
Russia's GDP uh, debt to GDP ratio is far lower than the United States. Its foreign exchange reserves and gold reserves are growing very dramatically, contrary to the United States, which continues to build its debt to foreign nations. And China is there to step in and has agreed to provide financial help to Russia to the extent it needs to uh, as Russia runs into difficulties because of sanctions. It, in fact, is driving Russia and China closer together and the other BRIC nations as well. So there's plenty of things to talk about with Jim Rogers. Uh, I think uh, the insights that James will provide will be very, very important. James Rogers moved to Singapore for a reason, and that reason was so that he could be free from government tyranny and confiscation of his wealth. After all, the United States has turned from a capitalist country to one of the most hostile countries, anti-capitalist countries in the world. Uh, It is a a tragedy that is unfolding before before our eyes, uh, and James Rogers will have a lot more to say about that. Eric Coffin also will have some very important things to say. We do have to go to commercial break now, but please come back to hear what Eric Coffin's top pick for 2015 will be. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Eric Coffin. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network avino silver and gold mines is a low-cost high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience in 2012 avino resumed production at its historic avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O dot com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm happy to have with me once again Eric Coffin. Eric resides in uh, Vancouver. He is the editor of a very good newsletter, namely Eric Coffin's HRA Journal. And you can learn more about Eric's service and sign up for his letter by going to hraadvisory.com. That's hraadvisory.com. Welcome, Eric. It's really good to have you with me again. Thanks, Jay, and... uh and Merry Christmas to you and Teresa. Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. It's uh, a time of the year of happiness, and I know that uh, 
you, you must be feeling a great deal of uh, mixed feelings because of the losses that you've suffered, the personal losses uh, of your brother and your uh, and your wife. And uh, for that, uh, I still feel a great deal of uh, of sorrow for you. And and but I know you also have a lot to be thankful for. You have two beautiful children, and uh, and they certainly have to be a part of a. Uh, part of happiness at this time of the year. So, getting on to business now. We we're looking back. Um, I was just looking at some of the early months of of this year, and uh, I guess I ran into a slide that I had prepared for my talk at the PDAC, and I noticed that after February of last year, all of my gold stocks, I think all of them were up, and uh, this different sectors that I break down my portfolio into the producers, the near producers, and those that are more exploration. Uh, companies they were all up somewhere between twenty and fifty percent during the first couple of months of two thousand and fourteen and i 'm thinking as I look back, I should have just sold everything and gone fishing or played golf or done something else last year rather than to uh, to struggle through the year uh, but it 's been a terrible year and i 'm assuming uh, a terrible year in the sense that you know these things just haven 't worked out that well but i 'm assuming probably a similar experience for you eric and uh if so what you know why are we having such a struggle these days in our sector i mean i mean pdac's probably a a good a good a good place to start i mean because at at that point you know gold had come off that horrendous dive that it had in 2013 and gotten up to the high 1300s i mean as it turned out that was going to be the high watermark for the year yeah and and i and I think that's, you know, in a nutshell where things went wrong was that the gold price turned on us again and, and went as low as 1130. And I think when you're looking at venture stocks, if you will, I think we also got hurt by the fact that, that the oil market completely fell apart. And although it doesn't seem like that should be connected, and in fact, oil dropping is actually a good thing for gold miners, most of them. I, I think you had a lot of people that trade both of these stocks running away from oil and gas stocks as fast as they could and and I think they took the opportunity to, to capture some gains I think in the oil and gas sector and looked around for tax losses and, and uh, had a pretty good idea where they'd find some unfortunately yeah, <laughs> yeah it's very easy to find tax but, uh, losses you know, in there was second. another wave of selling after that so I, I think you know you know as we as we all know so much of the sentiment in the sector depends on the gold price so how next year goes is going to going to depend on what the gold price does. I think. Yeah, no, no question about it. It's uh, it's sort of strange though, in a way, as you pointed out, as you alluded to a minute ago, that actually uh, falling energy prices can be very, very positive for gold mining operations. But investors tend to look at uh, assets like that. Uh, you know, they they tend to lump everything together, like hard assets or commodities, and and uh, at least metals and energy, and trade them together. Whereas I would argue. Uh, that gold mining companies, especially gold mining companies, probably silver to an extent as well, actually benefit, especially when you look at some of the larger, really big bulk mineable projects that have to use an enormous amounts of energy to haul around uh, huge amounts of rock that contain very little gold in them. But uh, in any event, uh, do you think we might see some improvement in the uh, in the operating profits of some of these mining companies, uh, let's su- say assume gold hangs in around twelve hundred dollars. Uh, do you think we might see some improvements in some of the operating, uh, uh, some of the producers this year, uh, assuming energy prices stay low? I guess that's a big assumption it itself. But well, it, I, 
I, I don't think it's a huge assumption based on, I mean, based on what's coming out of OPEC right now, unless, you know, un, unless production in the U.S. comes off a lot faster than I personally think it's going to, or some of the OPEC members cave, and I think odds are reasonably good we're going to see oil prices in the $60 range. Stephanie mm-hmm. say for quite a while, I think, actually. It doesn't sound like either side of this game of chicken is blinking. And that being the case, if you look at, and then you, you hit the nail on the head there, you look at big bulk tonnage operators, it's not uncommon for a, one of these 1,500,000 ton-a-day operations for energy costs to be in the in the neighborhood of, of 30% of their costs. Mm-hmm. Some, some of that's high, a fair amount of that's electricity to run the mills, but there's also, depending on, on how they're set up, there's very large fuel consumption in those ore trucks. You know, the mileage is measured in tenths of a mile per gallon. So it, it makes a difference. I mean, I, I could I could see some of these big sort of marginal producers, if you will, seeing, you know, I don't know, 8 or 10% drop in cost. The other thing to keep in mind, too, with what the dollar has done, the U.S. dollar in the last few months, mm-hmm. uh, it's you know, that's been a bit of a nightmare, obviously, for commodity traders and gold investors. But again, if you look at companies that are domiciled in areas where most of their costs are non-U.S., that's also going to have a positive impact on them. If you're a, you know, one, one, I'm actually writing an editorial today for, for, for the latest journal, and it touches on a topic that I talked about years ago, and that's, you know, the effect of these changes. And when you look at, you know, I've I, I put up a series of, of gold charts in different currencies, and the truth of the matter is gold hasn't broken down in most currencies, and in fact, mm-hmm. it's done very well uh-huh. in some of them. And if you're a, a company domiciled there, you know, I mean, I saw your last, your last piece about Russia, uh, I, I don't know the specifics because I don't follow the company. But say you're Kinross and you've got a couple, which you've got a couple big mines in Russia, which they do. Uh, I would think between the energy costs and the ruble, their their mine site cost structure just just dropped like a rock. I mean, yeah, got to be great for their for their bottom line. Yeah, very good point. I hadn't thought of that. Sure, yeah. That's uh, well. Even in Canada, there you you have an advantage uh, to an extent, about ten, eleven percent or so, right? Oh yeah, no, it's going to make a difference. Like most of the most of the Canadian miners, uh, their their cost per ounce in, in U.S. dollar terms probably probably dropped or should drop about ten percent because the dollars Canadian dollars gone from about ninety six, ninety seven to eighty six, eighty seven. So mm-hmm. it, it's going to help them. Mm-hmm. Would like to get your take on a couple of the companies that I follow that I know that you follow as well, and this is, you know, purely from a from a selfish point of view. I guess I'm interested in uh, companies that, um, well, the, some of the companies that you follow, starting with uh, Precipitate Gold, which is uh, a sentimental favor favorite of yours. It's one that you and your brother were involved with, uh, your late brother David, before he passed away and getting it started. And they've had some pretty decent uh, exploration results. Uh, could you just fill our listeners in a little bit on Precipitate Gold? Yeah, Precipitate is a company my, my late brother and I were founders of. I'm still one of the largest shareholders, so I'll give you that, that non-objective caveat. <laughs> um, they're in the Dominican Republic in an area called the Torreo Belt, which I'm, which I'm a big fan of. I just I think this is a built rock that's going to generate. It's generated a couple of discoveries. I think it's going to generate more as it gets more attention. They did make a discovery this year. Of course, nobody cares in this market. They drilled a discovery hole of uh, 18 meters of 4.5 grams, including uh, just 5 meters of uh, 13 grams. Mm-hmm. Uh, they 
should be just finishing up a follow-up program now because what they needed to do was expand the grid. They targeted this drill hole with, with something called IP and induced polarization, the geophysical method, and they were they were looking for chargeability highs. Uh, this discovery hole was drilled about 70 meters south of the strongest chargeability high in the grid, but that also happens to be the northern edge of the grid. So they're expanding that grid right now. I don't know whether they're done yet, but I expect we'll see results from this new IP and, and probably some other groundwork in January. You know, based on the fact the highest chargeability is on the edge of the survey, I don't think I don't think you have to be a wild-eyed optimist to assume that anomaly is going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be fairly shocking if it just disappeared. So yeah. I think that's one to watch. I mean, I you know we, we've all lamented how few companies are actually doing anything, and, and although I know management of Precipitate was frustrated mildly that the, that the market didn't care about their discovery. Uh, I've got a lot of respect for the fact that Jeff and, and, and Mike went right back at it, and they're they're expanding and improving the target for the next drill phase. Because you know, if the market gets any sort of love, people are looking for companies that are actually doing something. We're all sick of watching companies that are like watching paint dry. Right. I'm more interested in guys that are actually willing to go out and, and take a shot, and and they have a, a viable discovery here. I think it's a great shot for. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like it, and and our listeners should know that you know it's a it's a very low price stock. At, I think it was a twelve cents or thirteen cents or something like that, Eric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, uh, I and, wanted to be. <laughs> and and how many shares out there? I think there's about uh, forty now. Only forty million. Might be, might be might be might be a little bit on might be a touch under forty actually. Wow. Okay, so thirty-five maybe. Okay, so just you know, listeners, pay attention to this because. A thirteen cent stock, forty million shares or thereabouts. If they're onto a discovery, um, this is what makes this inter- this industry uh, exciting. Once things, once people pay any attention to it, when you start having discoveries, you can really start to see some real dramatic increases. And I'm not saying that's going to happen to precipitate gold, but as you just heard Eric say, they've they've had some nice drill holes on the edge of this IP anomaly, so it could uh, good good chance it's going to get uh, you know it's going to be quite quite a bit bigger than than uh, uh, one drill hole or a couple of, of very impressive drill holes. So that's uh, I agree that's one to watch, and it's one that I probably should be paying more attention to as well. Well, Eric, my engineer is telling me that we are just about out of time, and I wanted to ask you about some of the other stocks that I follow, that I know you follow, stocks in addition to Precipitate Gold, which you just discussed, such as Gold Quest, Columbus Gold, Silvercrest Mines, Virginia Mines, which is soon to merge with Osisco Royalties. But as my engineer tells me, we're just about out of time. And so I did want to ask you one more thing before we part company today. And that is, as we head into 2015, could you tell us what would be your favorite gold stock? Well, I'm going I'm I'm to be, pr- non, be non-objective and you know which one I'm going to pick. But uh, And I'm and telling your listeners, and I'll keep in mind I'm one of the biggest shareholders, so this is not an objective pick. But... Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next drill program on Precipitate. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that project. I'm, I'm very comfortable the target's going to get bigger when they put out the results of uh, the current phase of work, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that one because I think this, this sector needs discovery story so badly. Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, I, I really hope you're right about that. Uh, precipitate Gold PRG, 
uh, in the Dominican Republic. And as you heard Eric talk a little bit ago about the uh, a couple of great drill holes they had, probably just on the edge of this IP anomaly. So uh, lots of good uh, potential there. Um, you know, it's uh, there's no question about it. I mean, you uh, anytime you're buying an exploration stock, it's a risky proposition. But uh, you know, you don't get those great returns without assuming some risk. So. Uh, I really hope you're right about that for sentimental reasons as well as uh, reasons uh, to put money in our pockets, of course. So uh, I really appreciate that, uh, Eric, and uh, wish you and wish you and your family all the best. Folks, that's okay. all the time we have for this segment, uh, but uh, we are going to be back here in just uh, a couple minutes after the commercial break with Jim Rogers, the former partner of George Soros, and he'll be with me to talk about his views on Russia and uh, the markets in general. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jim Rogers. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Jim Rogers, who needs really, really needs no introduction to this uh, audience, has a very successful uh, TV personality of his own in the past at CNBC and elsewhere, a world traveler, a well-known author. Um, he's been on this show before, so welcome, Jim. It's really good to have you with us again. I'm delighted to be back, Jay. Really good to talk to you uh, for your insights as a world traveler, especially I'd like to focus today. I just, before we get into that, though, I'd like to just ask you, how are you enjoying uh, your life in, in Singapore with your, your wife, Paige, and I, I believe you have two children now? Yes, two daughters, two young daughters, Happy and Baby B. Oh, <laughs> we're all, all very keen. Uh, when I left New York, you know, at the last minute, I almost, the last day or a few days, I almost backed out. 
and didn't sell my house. Now I'm delighted I did. Singapore is a, a wonderful place to live with great education, great health care. Everything works in Singapore, Jay. It's not like New York where nothing works. Uh, no, it's a great place to live. Yeah, so if, I guess that you sort of answered my second question. I was going to ask you, uh, you know, it's been how many years since you moved there? Uh, seven and a half. Seven and a half years. So, I mean, things do change in seven and a half years. I, I take it then that you're very pleased with that decision. Uh, and if you had to do it over again, you would have, I mean, you, you don't have any re- regrets now. So that's what I hear you saying. No regrets. No regrets. No, we're very pleased to be here. Very good. Um, well, I want to. would like to focus a little bit today on... Um, on um, growing tensions between NATO and Russia, uh, you know, I think you have having uh, traveled extensively in Russia, not once but twice, and maybe more than that. But the the two that I know of, your world uh, tours, you took you uh, with considerable time through Russia. Uh, in in late winter 1990, I believe was the first time that you traveled there or, or thereabouts when you started out on your first worldwide trip, 65,000 miles on a motorcycle around the world you visited six continents then on uh then then i guess the latest one was around the start of uh, 1999 january 1st i believe when you started out from um uh, from uh, europe or i believe you started out from rayavec um and you started on another tour this time uh not alone but with Paige parker who would soon become your wife and you uh, that not on a motorcycle either, <laughs> but with a uh, custom-made Mercedes-Benz. On both trips, as I say, you spent quite a bit of time in Russia, and um, with Russia very much in the news these, these days. I really do want to hear sort of your impression of, of what might be going on there and there and elsewhere, uh, and around the world, and and why we're running into the trouble we seem to be having now. Twenty-five years ago, almost since you first visited there, what changes did you observe in Russia between your first visit and your second visit? And then I know that you've traveled to Moscow at least more recently. Uh, would like to know how you see that country now compared to when you first visited uh, back in nineteen nineteen ninety. Well, Jay, first of all, you said I spent a lot of time. Yes, if you drive across Russia, you have to spend a lot of time. <laughs> It's a huge country, yeah. and both times I drove across, the infrastructure was lacking, to say the least. So even if you just could go as fast as you could, it took a long time. Many stretches, there were hardly any roads at all. But just a little more background. I first went to Russia in 1966. I went behind the Soviet uh, Union. I was part of a, a university. I was a student as part of a university trip, and I came away saying, boy, this is not going to work. And I was bearish on Russia for the next 46 years. My two trips that you mentioned where I drove across Russia, the first time was from the Pacific Ocean to Poland, and the second time was from the Pacific Ocean to Finland. And both those times confirmed my view that this is not going to work. It's going to be a big mess. And as you know, Soviet Union was a big mess, and then Russia after that. But in, uh, and there was very little change. But the second time, 1999, by then, of course, communism had failed. The Soviet Union had broken up. Uh, Russia was uh, alone. It didn't have, it didn't dominate these other, these other nations anymore. Other than that, I mean, there weren't much, many changes. You still had trouble finding a place to sleep. You had, still had bad roads. You had, it was easier to buy things in 1999 than it was in 1990. 
certainly there were some things in the shops that were restaurants the second time, but still it was a undeveloped, if even developed was a proper word, even undeveloped was a proper word. So things were bad, and I didn't see any prospect of them getting better. I was pessimistic about communism and its aftermath and the way things were run, the bureaucracy, the work ethic, everything, just mm -hmm. everything about Russia it was mm -hmm. not going to work. But in the last couple of years, I've become more optimistic uh, because I have seen changes in the Kremlin. They realize, somebody realizes they cannot do the same old stuff, just take people's money or put them in jail or execute them or whatever, that you have to, if you're going to develop an economy uh, and, you, and a society, you have to respect the laws of, of mankind. Yeah. You know, you gotta, if people invent something or if people build a company, you can't just take it away from them or shoot them. Uh, so there's been a change. And so I've started getting more optimistic on Russia for after 46 years of being pessimistic. Then, to quickly update, along came Ukraine, uh, which have, has thrown a, a fly in the ointment, as you know. Uh, I, I'm an American, as are you and your listeners, I presume. But, you know, America started trying to overthrow the Ukraine. Uh, I mean, it's all on tape. There's plenty of evidence that this is what happened. Mm -hmm. America tried to do that in many cases, as you well know. Yes. Uh, and so we started trying to overthrow the Ukraine, and it backfired. You know, unfortunately, Putin outsmarted us. And so now America's blaming it on Russia. Like Russia did, did something wrong uh, in Ukraine. And so we have uh, problems internationally and with uh, sanctions against Russia. Uh, I'm very much against, uh, very few sanctions any time in history against anybody have ever worked or had any effect. These are a little absurd. They're hurting America in the long run more than they're hurting Russia because Russia is just turning to Asia. And Asia's got a lot more money and a lot more people a lot bigger markets than does the U.S. and Europe at this point. So unfortunately, now Russia and Asia are getting closer and closer together. Uh, it, it, it's hurting some people at, for, for a short time. But in the end, it's going to hurt us, America, more than it's hurting Russia. And Russia's suffering at the moment, not so much from sanctions, but from the collapse of oil prices. That, too, was engineered in Washington. Uh, you know, if you go back and look at what's happened in the last several months, America was negotiating with Iran to uh, try to solve the problems we have with them and they with us. And then in July, or June, I guess it was, the negotiations fell apart and the deadline was about to pass. And so America and Iran agreed to wait seven months before it, to set up a new deadline, which mm -hmm. was seven months. Well, almost instantly, oil prices started collapsing because Saudi Arabia started dumping oil at that point because America told them to dump oil to put pressure on Iran since the seven-month period, since the first deadline had passed, and we hoped that this, the second deadline, seven months later, they would listen to us. We were also putting pressure on Russia. Now, Saudi Arabia, of course, was happy to, to start dumping oil because they have the fear of fracking that fracking might hurt oil forever for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So you have the Saudis starting to dump oil to help America with Iran and with Russia. Uh, it, is, it certainly worked, as you know. Oil prices are down uh, nearly 50%, if not 50%, in that period of time. And so Russia is not a great place right now. The currency is collapsing. Uh, I 
continue to look for investments in Russia. I don't have very much yet. I even became a, a director of a company, a large Russian fertilizer company, in September. Mm-hmm. So I don't have much yet, but I am looking to buy more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as well as anybody else, that when things are collapsing, you should be looking that way, not running away. Mm-hmm. So I am looking to increase my investment in Russia. Jim, uh, how, how do you think uh, it's probably impacting Europe to a great extent, too, these sanctions against Russia? Is, is it not? Oh, yes. Uh, some European companies were badly hit. Uh, Europe, by the way, most of Europe is now trying to figure out a way to get around the, the sanctions, and most, many of them are. Some of them are doing business with Belarus, which is the neighbor of Russia, and then the goods get shipped into Russia. So they're finding ways around the sanctions. They don't. Most Europeans don't particularly like the sanctions any more than anybody else does. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, yes, it certainly had, has had and is having an effect in Europe as well. But again, yeah. from Europe's point of view, the same thing. It's driving Russia to Asia, which in the long run is not good for, for Europe. Yeah, we're, um, I th- you make the point about sanctions uh, very seldom working. And in fact, President Obama made that uh, made that uh, point when he talked about uh, Cuba. When he when he announced he was going to open up relations with Cuba, he says we've had these sanctions on for thirty years or whatever, and they haven't worked. The following day, he turns around and signs a bill that increases sanctions against Russia. So it's uh, it's, it's sort of curious. But I have I want to ask you about Cuba. Uh, opening relations with Cuba at this point in time, I have to think it might be a little bit of geopolitics involved there, a little tit for tat perhaps with the Ukraine, um, with Russia doing with the Ukraine what they're doing, and and Cuba of course being sort of a well, just recently Putin I think had agreed to increase trade and um, uh, uh, relations with Cuba maybe before uh, the latest of the Ukrainian issues uh, popped up. But, of course, Cuba is is sort of a, in touch with other countries that are considered rogue nations by the United States, and uh, such as Venezuela. I suppose Bolivia might fit in there, and, and to a certain extent, Ecuador. But I'm just wondering if you think maybe there's some geopolitics going on. I like the idea of, of uh, being able to trade with various nations. I think that's what we should do. I think you probably agree with that, too, that we shouldn't be restricted in our trade with various countries. We should be free to trade. But... Um, uh, but do you have any thoughts about that? Do you think this might have been a little bit of um, geopolitics involved with opening up to Cuba at this point in time? Well, I'm sure of that. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going to help or hurt Russia very much. Cuba's only got 10 million people, Jay, so yeah. we're not talking about a, yeah. a gigantic, and it's a very small, tiny economy. But, of course, it's just another slap in the face to Russia that, okay, now we're going to get in, involved more with your friends in Cuba. But back to the bigger point, you know, it's another example of how sanctions, we've had sanctions on Cuba for over 50 years, over 50 years, and it's done nothing to change anything in in Cuba. If anything, it's held Cuba back. I'm of the view that the more relationships you have with people, the more likely you are to change them. You know, if, if, if Cubans get exposed to prosperity and capitalism and good times, uh, and smart people, they're more likely to be involved with them than if you're sitting there hitting them over the head day after day after day. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's uh, obviously, in my view, uh, not a good thing. Certainly didn't work in South Africa. South Africa changed on its own, and we could go on and on. Um, but, and I've suspected, yes, Obama said, well, I'll give them another slap in the face by opening up Cuba. But 
I think, listen, Jay, after over 50 years of failure, you think even Obama, even the politicians in Washington will realize this didn't work. Maybe we should try something new. Well, the definition of insanity uh, doesn't seem to... Uh, it doesn't seem to be observed by the uh, the Federal Reserve, the banking system, or our government. I think it was, um, well, I don't know who it was that decided or uh, defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So uh, that seems to be what uh, our policymakers are doing, and one wonders sometimes if they don't have, you know, what their motives are. They, I, I don't, you know, it's hard to believe that they're that stupid, but Anyway, that's uh, you know hey, one of hey, it's, hey, it's not hard for me to believe that that's stupid. I'm yeah. older than you. I've seen them. I've, you're not that much older. Than, you're not that I know much older. That stupid. Yeah, I, I just uh, I, you know I mean these are guys that come out of top institutions in many cases at the Federal Reserve. You know they've all been uh, propagandized. I suppose I mean the uh, uh, PhDs from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. How can they be stupid? But I guess. Maybe anyway, uh, you know one of the things I noticed in your book, uh, your adventure capitalist, which by the way to my listeners I'd really recommend if you haven't read it, pick up a copy of it. It's just a it's a real fun read, and I think it's an educational read. Most of us can't travel the way Jim Rogers has a, a couple of times around the world, and and still does travel frequently all over the place. But uh, if you want to get a sort of a sense, a real sense of what life was like, and this was, uh, well, now it's 15 years ago almost, isn't it, Jim? I mean, uh, we're talking about it. Time goes so fast. I would really recommend to my listeners that they pick up a copy of Adventure Capitalist. It's it's just a great read. It's a lot of fun. I was just, in, because I'm so focused on Russia, and I went and looked at parts that you wrote about that, and one of the things that struck me, Jim, was that on page 161 of your book, there is a picture of you with Father Valentin. Uh, he's a Russian Orthodox priest who was a dissident, an outcast priest, when you visited Russia the first time. On your second trip, well, he was he was given a, a considerable amount of power. And uh, one of the criticisms, I mean, we in the United States, they criticize Putin for everything. One of the things they're criticizing him for is uh, being too cozy with the Russian Orthodox Church and being too... Uh, too moralistic, and the Russians have, you know, I mean, he he came out against the uh, the uh, punk rock group uh, Pussy Riot. He came out and they put, um, uh, you know, they've come out against homosexuality and stuff like that. That used to be uh, at one time those those kind of ideas were not accepted that widely in the United States either. But in any event, not to moralize. But I'm just I'm wondering, do you do you have any um, any concerns about Putin being too close to the Russian Orthodox Church? Uh, no, that Russia is too big, and there are too many, too many people. Uh, I, I, I mean, is Obama too close to to the church in the states, or the people in in the Great Britain too close to the church? No, I don't. Yes, he's not. He's not like Khrushchev. He's not like Stalin. He's not like Lenin. But yeah. no, and and certainly that he listens to the church, and the church has an influence on all Russians, especially Russian politicians. But as far as far as being too close, no. That doesn't disturb me at the moment. Yeah. Well, it would uh, seem as though, from what I'm reading, there is a great deal of religious freedom there, the Catholic Church and a lot of Protestant churches and some non-Judeo-Christian uh, synagogues and so forth. Uh, at least the freedom to worship in Russia is one of the things that I picked up on, not only from your book, but also from some other sources that I've looked at. And to me, as a person who was brought up in this country, I thought that was one of the things that America was supposed to be about. But in a sort of very subtle way, we are being trained 
to think a certain way about a lot of things, Jim, I think. And one of the things I really appreciate about you is your ability to provide an objective point of view, not only because, well, I think you, you moved to Singapore because you had a mindset that sees the world objectively more than most of us are capable of doing. So that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you. I'd also like to ask you a little bit about the BRICS. You know, you mentioned the relationship between Russia and China. Well, certainly Russia is doing a lot of business with, uh, with India these days. And, uh, and I know that there's a growing amount of trade outside of the U.S. dollar now that's going on. Even our good friends Canada and Australia, I think New Zealand, have direct uh, ties with China in which they are no longer using the U.S. dollar but trading in their own currencies. I suppose it doesn't matter too much for the dollar's strength whether or not transactions are traded it's whether people hang on to the dollars for a long period of time but uh, but the one thing that I find very interesting I know that the US um, and NATO sort of try to cut Russia off at the knees by taking away their swift trading uh, capabilities to trade internationally to move money around and so forth and which I think is really stupid but again you talked about how it's our sanctions are pushing Russia towards China it seems to me that uh, from what I read, there is also a move towards setting up their own trading infrastructure, their own trading platform, if you will, their own sort of uh, electronic system that would allow them to move and to settle uh, their their transactions. Um, do, do you see this, uh, the BRICS forming uh, something that will compete against the United States dollar as the world's reserve uh, currency? And do you see possibly gold playing a role in that in some form? Well, for several years, the world has real many people in the world have realized that we have a, a problem that the U.S. dollar is the only uh, world currency, uh, and the dollar is a very flawed currency. America is the largest debtor nation in world history, and the debts are getting higher and higher and higher. So not only do we have a monopoly situation, semi-monopoly situation, but we have a very flawed semi-monopoly situation. Mm-hmm. So people have been looking for something. This uh, recent development is pushing many countries further and further away from the dollar. Well, they're looking for ways to get away from and avoid the U.S. dollar because of the situation. I mean, if the Russians decide they don't like you, they just, you know, cut you off at the knees. They take all your money away from you, and you can't get it, and you can't move it around. So many people have realized this is not a good situation, and I mean, I don't don't know who would defend it except maybe some people in Washington. Everybody knows that competitive markets are better than non-competitive markets. Mm -hmm. So the world is trying to find some of the nations have set up, starting to set up competing banks. None of this has taken off in any big way yet, Jay, because it's not that easy. Yes. It <laughs> change, you know, decades of, of the way the world has worked. Sure. But you you did mention that some countries are now have bilateral currency agreements with China. That's spreading more and more. The Chinese economy, the currency is still a blocked currency. It's not freely tradable, but... It's becoming much more open and tradable, uh, exchangeable. Uh, the last nine years, they've been taking many steps, and they're almost to complete convertibility now. In some places, they are. They do have complete convertibility. So it's happening, and unfortunately, you and I as Americans are going to regret it someday because eventually something's going to compete with the U.S. dollar, which is going to reduce America's uh, prosperity and power a lot. And eventually, something's going to replace the U.S. dollar, which is going to be even worse for America. Mm-hmm. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot yet again by throwing our weight around, saying everybody has to do what we say. 
Yeah, and it's um, I guess that's one of the reasons some of us are buying gold. I, Warren Buffett is buying a lot of uh, fixed assets, I think railroads and um, I don't know agricultural thing. I don't know exactly what he's buying, but from what I understand, a lot of a lot of the kinds of things I would picture Jim Rogers buying. Uh, while we're on the topic of of um, of tangibles, what about commodities? Now, are you looking? What is your view on commodities with the Rogers Fund? It's down a lot, like all commodities have gotten hurt. I mean, we're in a. You think we're still in a secular bull market for commodities, and this was just a cyclical bear within that secular bull. Well, I obviously don't know any more than anybody else, but I remind you with stocks, Jay, between 1982 and 19 and, and sorry, 1982 and 2000, there were many big, big, big setbacks in the stock market. In sure. 1987, stocks went down 40 to 80 percent. Uh, 89, 1990, 1994. I mean, I can go on and on. And every time people said the bull market's over. Uh, I don't know that this commodity bull market's over. I happen to think it's not. Uh, but we're having a major correction, which is normal in markets. That's the way markets have always worked. Uh, I don't see enough permanent supply in most commodities, except maybe iron ore and a couple of others. Uh, and iron ore is not publicly traded like the others that I'm interested in, uh, I don't see enough permanent supply unless we're going to have an economic collapse, which we could and will eventually uh, to to end the bull market. I'm especially optimistic about agriculture at the moment. Agriculture has been terrible for 30 years. Agriculture has done nothing for many years. Agriculture today is down from where it was 15 or 20 years ago, believe it or not. So I'm still optimistic about agriculture. We've explained the energy markets, what's happening there. It's a, it's a political action that's taking place. Unfortunately, when you bank, when we bankrupt a few, uh, producers, such as the frackers, I'm afraid oil is going to go back much, much higher. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you wonder also, I, there's uh, certainly reports of some of the more marginal companies uh, in the oil patch that are having some difficulty now, and you wonder if that might not set off uh, some sort of a domino or chain reaction. And I guess when the global economy is so highly leveraged, it doesn't. It might not take that much to, to start things going in the wrong direction. Unfortunately, we've sort of you would think we would have learned something from 2008, 2009. But I see that the bankers uh, went to went to Congress and or went to Obama and got a repeal or at least part part of the uh, the Volcker rule repealed. And also, if I understand it, I think they've put it on on hold for a couple of years now. So it seems like the bankers get their way no matter what happens, uh, the the rich and powerful ones anyway. Uh, Would like to just ask you quickly, if I could. Uh, Jim, with a couple more minutes that we have left, if I could ask you about Japan. I just uh, listened to Kyle Bass talking about how broke the Japanese government is, uh, with a government paying, I think, 25%, I think he said, on uh, interest uh, expense, 25% of their budget on interest expense, with with the average uh, rate that they're paying, about 17 basis points only. So, I mean, if you went to, if, if you went to 1% even, you would have, you know, a huge problem. I mean, you'd be, it's, it's, and plus the demographics, of course, are are horrific for Japan. How do you, how do you see that shaking out? What's going to happen there with Japan, and and could that be something that sets the whole world spiraling downward to the whole global economy? Well, I own Japanese shares at the moment. I'll probably buy more, but uh, long term, Japan is a is a disaster. I mean, it's it got declining population, skyrocketing internal debt. Debasing the currencies, debasing your currency has never been a viable way to revive a country in the long, even in the medium term. Some, it helps in the short term, but it's a disaster. 
in the long term. So Mr. Abe, Prime Minister, is going to go down in history as the person who ruined Japan. No question about that. Totally ruined Japan. Uh, in the meantime, I own Japanese yes, and I will probably buy more. He's putting through many things that will help us, have helped and will help the stock market, giving incentives for Japanese to buy shares. He's uh, persuading the pension funds to stop buying government bonds and to, and to buy shares. Uh, I mean, he's doing a lot to help the stock market. Again, I want to emphasize that in the end, it's going to be an absolute nightmare and disaster for Japan. Uh -huh. But in the meantime, it's good for stockbrokers and financial ties. I, and I hope for me, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but yeah. uh, I don't own the currency because he is determined to drive it to nothing. Uh, but that, that will also help some parts of the economy, especially the, the stock market. But in the end... I, I hate to say it, Jay, there won't be a Japan in a hundred years, maybe in 50 years, because they're not having babies. They're destroying the economy. I mean, it's going to be a disaster. If I were a 10-year-old Japanese, I'd move away. Well, they, um, I mean, they're just fading away anyway because they're not reproducing, so and they're not bringing in immigrants. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a sad story. Do you find, though, that the Japanese stocks are, are somewhat undervalued in terms of cash flow and, and profits relative to, say, the U.S. stock market? Oh, absolutely. The Japanese stock market is down 60% from its all-time high. The U.S. stock market is making all-time high. Right. Uh -huh. uh, the Japanese stock market is certainly cheap on a historic basis, on an absolute basis, on a relative basis. Uh, the, you have to be worried about the currency. You have to understand the currency because it is being destroyed. But if you hedge your positions, you might make some money. Just real quickly on on China, um, China's by the reports we get here in the West, to the extent you can rely on them, to to the extent you can rely on Chinese uh, statistics. I don't know that we can rely on the U.S. statistics that much either. But uh, do you, what's your sense of China now? To what extent is it slowing down? Is it transitioning now to a more uh, domestic dominated economy where there's more domestic demand? Are they making a successful transition in your view? Well, they have certainly been trying to slow things down. They've had inflation. They've had a property bubble. Uh, the government rightly has been trying to slow some things down. Many of their customers are slowing down, as you know, uh, a lot of Europe, and et cetera. So, yes, it's, things are changing in China. They have been slowing down. Uh, I, I've been buying Chinese shares for the past year. I did not buy Chinese shares between 2008 and 2013. But the government has come out with a list of parts of the Chinese economy they're going to emphasize where they're going to spend billions of dollars emphasizing these parts of the economy. So I've been buying shares in those sectors of the Chinese economy. Other people are going to fail. Real estate will probably collapse. Uh, some financial types will finance collapse. But in the meantime, I've been buying shares despite the slowdown. I've been buying things, I hope, Jay, in the parts of the economy that are going to do well because the government has decided to emphasize those parts of the economy. Uh, there will be some failures. Though. There are debt problems in China. There are other kinds of problems in China. Hopefully, I'm buying the right things. Well, I'm sure if anybody uh, has done their homework, it's you. And you've uh, having traveled to various countries, I think, also has been a very, really big help to you, no doubt, in understanding. And I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing your experiences and your wisdom with us. I just one quick, uh, quick thing yet before I let you go. We used to joke, or I don't know, joke. I, I was, I've always been such a gold bug, and I remember even before you moved from Manhattan, I we used to talk about gold. You used to say uh, that uh, lead would outperform gold. I think gold was trading below five hundred dollars or so then. But how do you feel about gold versus the other commodities in general now? Well, I own gold. I own silver. I haven't bought either for a while. Uh, I haven't sold any. I did hedge a little bit of my gold. Uh, I expect another chance to buy gold and silver, precious metals, in the next year or two. Uh, if it happens, then I, 
I hope I'm smart enough to buy out. If gold goes under a thousand, Jay, and that's not a prediction, but it could easily. Mm-hmm. If it does go under a thousand, I hope I'm smart enough to buy a lot more. In the meantime, uh, don't don't get rid of your gold, uh, even unless you're a good trader. And if it does go down, but I'm I expect that when the next opportunity comes in a year or two or three, to buy a lot more gold. Yeah, if I'm smart enough. Well, it certainly makes sense, Jim. I think gold should be viewed as a, a preserver of wealth rather than an, as an investment vehicle generally. And I know that you've done very well in the past uh, investing. So I always respect your views, and um, uh, but I always remember that, that we you used to tell me all the time, Jay, lead will do better. Well, of course, that was as to the Chinese economy was taking off, and we were it was a little different then. Uh, I think we a little more optimistic about the global economy at that time perhaps than you were certainly than I am right now. But in any event, I want to thank you very much, Jim, for being with us. Uh, It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas and a really happy and healthy 2015. Well, happy holidays to you, Jay, and all your listeners. Happy 2015. I hope we do this again. I would love to. Anytime, James. Thank you so much. Well, that pretty much does it for today's show and for the year 2014. It has been a rather trying year for those of us who do not buy the propaganda of the United States government and Wall Street. It's been trying for those of us who believe that our government is becoming ever more corrupt and dysfunctional. It's been trying for those of us who believe that our economy is spinning downward, that it is not nearly as good as the propaganda tells us it is. And it's been frustrating for those of us who have purchase the counter-investment gold. Gold has gotten slammed really hard this year, again, and after a a good start for the year, 2014, towards the uh, second half of the year, gold was taken down again, not for lack of physical demand, mind you, because uh, there is evidence that demand is stronger than it's ever been right now, especially from the BRIC countries. Next week, the first week of 2015, I will be talking to Robert Justra. He's the CEO of one of my favorite gold mining companies, that being Columbus Gold, which is moving fairly rapidly toward becoming a meaningful gold producer from its gold project in French Guyana. And to help us understand where our economy and markets are heading in 2015, the always insightful John Rubino will be with me as well. I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE MX Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O.com. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. 
Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.